Uh, today we enter the season of Lent, a season of personal review and repentance and renewal. It is, it's the season of waking up in the morning and seeing yourself in the mirror. A zit to pop, grody teeth to brush, bad breath to gargle away, greasy hair to wash and to comb, dark circles under the eyes to cover up, a pale visage to brighten up with makeup. It can be quite a task. It often gets regularized and habitual and really no big deal, especially if you allow yourself time in the morning for all of that. Lent is that time of the church year. We try to regularize repentance again, taking stock of ourselves to change towards the likeness of Christ. Our theme running through the Sundays of Lent will be scars, and we will see testimony of our own members about the struggles of life and of faith. We'll see these beginning next Sunday. Scars have stories. I'll share a little bit about a physical scar I have on my body. The emotional and physical, spiritual, I mean, the emotional and spiritual scars make up the stories of our lives. And it's up to you as to what you want to tell, of course, with these scars. But many times we are the richer for having heard your stories. The stories of struggles and of burdens and of healings, we can learn from each other. And God is often glorified through it all as his people are strengthened through these, this travail and, and, and through the tears. We'll also bring into discussion the characters Nicodemus meeting Jesus at night, the woman meeting Jesus at the well, the blind man calling out to Jesus at the roadside, and Lazarus meeting Jesus in the brightness of an open tomb. And actually, all the people who surround these people are also part of that story as they get to be eyewitness of this and have conversation about these amazing things. The reality of a life-changing Jesus will be seen in the midst of all these people scarred with the reality of their sin. Today we're going to do a 10,000-foot overview of the scar and salvation story, and the weeks that follow we'll get down to the street conversation level with our own characters. Our Old Testament lesson, our fall into sin. God creates the world, the animals, male and female. He gives them free reign, free as in they are free to love him or disobey him. There are no robots created in the Garden of Eden. And they choose to disobey him. They eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. The one thing they're told not to do and the scars begin. Shame in nakedness, fright, blame and division, pain, sweat, thorns and thistles, and death. Nakedness and shame, that's a zit you can't pop. Nothing you can do with that, well, except to turn our shame into curiosity and domination and license. 
pornography is a $13 billion business in America, and it's responsible for so many broken homes and exploited children and adults. Fear. You can't brush that away with a toothbrush. Nothing you can do with fear, well, except to buy more guns, uh, demonize people, flee to the suburbs. Home security systems now with their 24-7 camera surveillance is actually creating more paranoia than security and peace of mind because all the activity in your neighborhood can now be interpreted uh, subject to your own personal interpretation. Blame and division. Listerine can't make that go away. We could blame politicians for trafficking in this scarring behavior, but I believe politics is downstream from our culture. In other words, we get the politicians we deserve. They're doing what they can get away with, indeed, actually what works. But this division is everywhere. This blame is everywhere. Parents against teachers. Citizens against cops. Wives against husbands and vice versa. It's hard-baked into our human condition. Pain, sweat, thorns, thistles. Life is hard, and you can't shower that away either. From giving birth to putting food on the table to living together as man and woman, none of it's easy. Everything must be worked for, hard and with pain and sweat. And death. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. No makeup can beautify that human condition, even though funeral directors do put makeup on the embalmed corpse. Enough said about death. You know it all too well. I've got a scar on my thumb. It's about an inch long, running diagonally. Across the knuckle right underneath the nail, I was told not to play with knives. But I did. I even did it with my friend down the road, Julie. We knew we were doing wrong. We found a wheelbarrow and tipped it over and hid behind the wheelbarrow so that no one could see us. And then I started whittling a stick with the knife facing towards you. And you know what happened. My mom was a nurse and she did a very good job with this very deep cut. This scar reminds me that we love to do what we're told not to do. So now what? Let's go to Romans chapter 5. And here's the logic of Romans 5, our second lesson. There was one man, Adam, <clears throat> and he brought sin into the world through his, through his sin. His sin brought then death and condemnation. There is one man, Jesus, who Paul calls also in another chapter of Romans, a second Adam. So he reprises this tragic story in the Garden of Eden. And now Jesus becomes that second Adam and does what we humans should have done all along. Instead of sin, his life was righteous. His life was one righteous act. And through Jesus, instead of death and condemnation, 
we have justification and life. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Jesus is the fulfillment of the hint found in Genesis chapter 3. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise... He shall, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is the obedient one. He's the righteous act that reversed our sinful act and Satan tried his hardest to stop Jesus in his tracks. I'm going to read Romans chapter 5 one more time, but I'm going to read it in the message, which is a paraphrased translation. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death, and no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relationships with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points us ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through the one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was a death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, and those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides? Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people into the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. In our gospel lesson today, Jesus is baptized and he publicly enters into the office of the Messiah. He's led into the, into the, by the Spirit into the wilderness, which is the barren desert in Jesus' day, and he's tempted by the devil. He's tempted to use his power to assuage his appetites, to test God's promises by throwing himself off the peak of the temple, to guarantee the world's worship by giving allegiance to Satan. And in all these temptations, he appeals to the scriptures, the word of God. There is power in the word of God. Jesus remained true to the Father's will. His living was the righteous act that reversed the rebellious act of Adam and Eve. 
His own beautiful living was so damning to a people who were blinded by their own rebellion that they, we, put him on a cross. His death brought life. His death was payment for our trespass. We've been justified in Christ, declared to be righteous because of the holy living of Jesus and his payment of sin upon the cross. Going back to Genesis. In this most tragic tragic chapter of the whole Bible, there is a hint of good. God tells the snake that the snake will bruise the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the snake. The one who brought mischief, pain, toil, and death into the world will finally in the end be judged and conquered by an offspring of the woman. There will be vengeance and judgment and things will be set right. Uh, There's a powerful scene in the movie, The Passion. Uh, Jesus is in in the Garden of Gethsemane struggling not with Satan, but with the Father actually, pleading to him, wondering if there's any other way to bring salvation to the world. And while Jesus is painfully praying to the Father, a snake shows up. Let's watch that clip. The battle's been waged against sin, death, and the power of the devil, and the righteous one has justified us. The grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded for many. For you and for me, a glory be to God. In the name of Jesus, amen.